When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, you are listening to a brand new episode of Whispers in the Wings, and this week I am joined by special guest host Monique Orton, who is a radio mic tech currently working on Tina Turner, the musical. I am so excited to welcome Monique onto the podcast today because this is our first special guest outside of the world of stage management. So today we are going to learn all about the incredible world of sound, to which, as you will hear a couple times throughout this episode, I don't know a lot about. But I am really excited to bring Monique on. Before we do, and before I read out her bio, I do want to let you know that this episode touches on topics of mental health and the importance of finding that work-life balance. If you or anyone you know is in need of support, please reach out to Support Act, who offer a free phone counselling service for anyone working in the Australian music or the arts industry by calling 1-800-959-500. If you are overseas or not in the industry, please reach out to your relevant providers. So before I bring Monique into the studio today, let's find out a little bit more about her. Monique Orton is a live entertainment tech working in Australian theatre, cabaret, music, burlesque, circus and comedy. In the last six years, she has designed lighting for musicals, managed venues and teams, operated sound, lighting and projection simultaneously for festivals, mixed musical artists of all genres and worked as a radio mic tech or sound swing on professional shows such as Come From Away, Hamilton, Mary Poppins, and not only the recent Phantom of the Opera tour, but the outdoor production of Phantom of the Opera in view of the iconic Sydney Harbour. Monique documents the experience of working in theatre and the arts through her YouTube channel, Monique Tech, in hopes of giving theatre fans a unique insight into the shows they love, inspiring a new generation of techs to join the industry, and to empower them with the knowledge of what that might look like. She has most recently taken on the role of radio mic technician on the Australian premiere, Tina, the Tina Turner musical now playing in Sydney. Hi, Monique. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Still battling a cold. It's uh, it's never going away. But that's what happens when you wrap up a show and, you know, you get a little bit of time off, you get sick. Your body really does just start to shut down. I think this is a universal experience for everyone. Yeah. Now, I'm really excited to talk to you today because you are our first guest that is outside the world of stage management. I feel very honoured. I'm very excited because I don't know a lot about sound. <laughs> Which is probably the only department that you don't know a lot about at this point, honestly. Yeah, yeah. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, for once at the moment, I'm, I'm team lighting and AV and all of that at the same time. So, yeah, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about the world of sound today. I love this. I think actually, stage, we were talking about this on Phantom when people were all getting sick. 
I think stage management would be the department who could step up an emergency fill-in sound the easiest. Like the person who calls the show would probably be the best at randomly jumping on the console to mix. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it probably wouldn't be a comfortable experience, but purely based on calling the show, we'd probably know it quite well. Well, that's the thing because you need to know the lines and where the line falls, who comes on when they go off, all of that sort of stuff. So I see that. Would I put myself up to do it? Um, Probably (laughs) not. (laughs) Now, you've worked on a mixture of things for musical, cabaret, music, burlesque, circus, comedy, so, so many areas within the industry. How did you get started? Like what interested you in in theatre and were you always interested in moving into sound? When I was in high school, I was a performer purely because I didn't know that there were other options. I knew Mm -hmm. that I loved the arts. I loved theatre. I loved live music. Passionately hated being on stage. Not necessarily because I was afraid, but because I didn't ever feel partially that but also because I didn't really feel a strong connection to the audience. Mm-hmm. Like a room full of strangers, I was like, I don't really feel like I'm getting a lot out of this interaction, which other people, as we know, some very talented people we work with are very good at that. I wasn't mm-hmm. great at it, which might have been because I was in Orange and there was about two people to connect with in front of me. But the people backstage and the people that you were putting on the show with and the other band members and cast members were the people that I really that was the connection that I felt like I was getting a lot out of. I did a music industry course at TAFE while I was at high school. And in that course, we learned a little bit about sound, recording it, and also doing it live. And as soon as I got in front of a console, I was like, oh, I see. This makes sense to me. This all makes sense. And I love it. And I don't ever want to be on the other side of this ever again, which I did continue to do a little bit, unfortunately. But I just kind of fell in love with it, like the technical side as well as the emotional side of, you know, putting on this incredible thing with incredible people, being part of the team, that process I just fell in love with. And as soon as I finished school, I started studying sound, moved to Sydney because there wasn't a lot of options in Orange to pursue working in production. Mm-hmm. And throughout the course of uni, I really struggled, honestly, but I found a group of friends that I just absolutely adored and they were putting on a show of the last five years with Blackout Theatre Company and they really needed someone to help with lighting and because I was kind of doing everything because I'd gone into small venues where it was like surprise you're on sound so you also therefore need to do lighting and I was like (laughs) oh okay in that process I just fell in love with the process all over again like it really reignited my passion for the industry and for theatre specifically because I was doing lots of small gigs and like you said cabaret and burlesque and music and comedy and kind of just like small venue gigs which I also loved while I was managing a couple of small venues in Sydney and doing their tech I then moved into doing community theatre shows with a company in Sydney they kind of taught me everything I know I didn't learn a lot at uni which is part of my negative feelings about the experience but I did learn so much there Did a bunch of fringe festivals, did a bunch of touring with comedy festivals and cabaret performers and things like that. And then eventually kind of found myself just falling into professional theatre two years ago. Actually, yesterday it was two years since my first shift at Come From Away, which was my first show. Which is where we met. Congratulations. Yes, it is. It's so fascinating to hear because obviously, you know, people go through university and take many different things away from it. 
some people love the experience. Some people go, yeah, I was there. I made some connections, but I really, you know, I didn't feel like I learned as much. But it, it is very much once you get out in the industry when you can actually put your fingers on the physical console, you know, and actually be doing all of those things where you actually start to develop those skills further. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of departments within production, and I'm sure it's I'm sure it's all of them, honestly, where you can sit in as many classes as possible and you might learn in them, but nothing truly compares to the experience of actually being in the building and actually doing the job. That is why a lot of, you know, when when this industry started, there was no courses on mm. these roles. There was no regulations around how to do them. It was just a group of people making a show hit the stage and work. And yeah. I find that learning that way still really works. Yeah, I mean, that is what theatre is. It's a collaboration. You know, we, we are segregated in a way of departments and typically you don't cross departments and you sort of just stay in your lane and you do what you need to do. But when you actually have the ability to look outside of stage management for me and actually look at what other people are doing, you get a really wider understanding and appreciation for for that collaboration, which is theatre and what is what I love about theatre. Yeah, me too. It's such a interesting especially professional theater it's such an interesting workspace because i did come from that world of community theater small shows fringe Mm. shows especially where there is not this like you said kind of segregated department Mm. it is i am here there is this problem that needs to be fixed or this Mm. task that needs to be done and so i will do it there was not a oh well i'm in town i'm not stage management so that's not my problem but on a scale like professional theater you really need to do that because Mm. not everyone can do all of these jobs well except for you apparently (laughs) i don't want to be doing them all (laughs) i'm happy to not be doing them all yeah it's quite overwhelming but it also i I imagine that from a stage management perspective you do get more of a view of everyone's role within the show because you do to some extent oversee every department organize who needs to be where when what rehearsals need to be done for different departments yeah. not just the cast yeah. whereas other people like i never think about what auto are doing you know <laughs> that's fair that is that's absolutely fair except for when i almost get hit by something because i'm an idiot <laughs> you've always got to be eyes on the back of the head you've Correct. always got to be watching out what's happening but also you know any stage manager or, or any mech on the deck also should be watching out for you oh so, always you know we're always looking out for each other. What is the sort of like day-to-day life like in in sound? The radio mic tech position I have found is a lot of social skills, mm-hmm. which I didn't really expect. I didn't get into tech because I have phenomenal social skills. So that was a little <laughs> bit unexpected. Within the sound department, there are usually, depending on the size of the show, but quite commonly it is three people and then maybe a swing. There will be a head of department who mixes the show most of the time and does all of the like people admin, head of department kind of things. There's a deputy who really kind of oversees and has a really good understanding of the system of the show and how it's put in and where everything is. They do what is often called the B plot backstage all the time, which is the monitoring plot. And they also learn to mix the show. And then there is the radio mic tech, which is my position, who kind of oversee the microphones that go on cast and do the backstage plot with cast and other crew 
on deck, moving around, fixing things throughout the show, as well as maintenance for all of those microphones and those kind of things. So a lot of the time I am the messenger between the cast and a lot of people backstage and our head of department slash engineer because they, like we're, it's been almost a month since we've opened the show I'm currently working on and I still think that our head of department has not met most of the cast purely because they're stuck out the front learning the show Mm -hmm. mixing the show Mm -hmm. all of the text they don't get to come backstage and hang out with everyone the way that I do so to a lot of them in the first instance myself and the deputy are kind of the face of the department which can be a little bit overwhelming but exciting as well as you said it's a very social role because you are getting quite close with the cast like you are physically having to you know put a microphone on their face it's a very bizarre uh, part of the body to be accustomed to for people. I think about that sometimes mm. because other departments will watch me fix people's microphones and they find it really odd, which I don't find it odd anymore, but it's funny to see it from their perspective. Like a lot of the times if I am, for example, if I'm pulling back someone's microphone and we're backstage so it's dark so I can't see very well, mm. I'll often be standing in front of someone with a finger on their forehead to feel where their mic is and then pulling the cable at the back of their neck So I've kind of got like my hands around their neck and on their face while I'm standing in front of them, which is a little bit intimate. It's a bit bizarre when you really think about it. Then I'm also taping behind people's ears, taping behind their necks, often on their backs, up in their scalp, separating their hair to clip into pay clips. It's a bit, yeah, it is quite personal. But one of my favorite parts of the job is that you are often one of the last people someone sees before they go on stage and one of the first Mm -hmm. people they see when they come off stage and that is quite special for what is usually or can be really huge important moments in someone's life or really impactful and difficult parts of a show that is quite a special experience to share that with someone seeing a show from an audience perspective one of the first things you notice is when sound goes wrong you know when there's a crackle in a microphone oh don't they just we had two show stops for once in Melbourne due to, to a crackling microphone because it's a, a bit of a smaller show. We do have two mics, you know, the backup mic in the hairline, but we only have one pack. Right. So we have to stop the show to swap from one microphone to the other in the in the pack. You know, you don't want to be stopping the, the show for, yeah. for, you know, a microphone thing, but you also can't have the audience listening to that, that sound. Well, yeah, and there's also... For some characters in a lot of shows, they never come off stage. Like I did Mm. a community production of a show and there was someone on there who was telling me, like the engineer setting up the show was telling me about when they did community shows of Les Mis, that on the plot, which would be like a, a big table that has every single character, every single song and who is on for which scenes and whether they have solo lines or not. Next to Valjean, there is a column that says the stalking of Valjean, which is the few times he is off stage and where and for how long, because if he has a problem, you never have an opportunity to fix it. And honestly, Tina is kind of like that as well, which is very stressful. Mm -hmm. I think Tina comes off stage a total of, I would say collectively over the show, she is never off stage for more than a total of five minutes. And she's not in the very first scene, really. So that is most of it. But other than that, all of her changes are quick changes. Most of them are on stage. And it's quite stressful because it's a really, really, really demanding role. It is so much dancing, so much physical action on stage. There is quite a bit of 
fight scenes within the show. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like domestic violence scenes, unfortunately, which is just part of her story, which they do very, very well, uncomfortably. And she's getting thrown around. She's dancing. She's running all over the place. She's never off stage, sweating up a storm because they are just doing the most incredible job. And there are so many issues that can happen in that time that the yeah. times she comes off stage very briefly are very important if you have an issue. And I guess that's where the importance of, you know, stage management and sound working together because throughout rehearsals, we're sitting there, we know when people are coming on, we know when people are leaving the stage, we, you know, we populate all that mm. documentation to put together to make, you know, not only you, your job easier, but anyone else that may need that information of when things are happening on and off stage. What other sort of key information is crucial from stage management that helps sound, you know, immensely, but we may not realise? Oh, so much. (laughs) Probably not that you don't realise, but there's so much. All of our information about cast changes, split tracks, if they ever happen, which are Mm. a terrifying time for everyone. All of those are super important to sound because, and for the two departments to work together in that, because... To say, John is going on for Jamie's track, but Jeremy will do the dance parts. That doesn't really tell sound a lot of anything. Like saying, this person will be doing a speaking line. We still want this person to be ensemble singing. This person will do this line. Those kind of bits of information are super necessary because sometimes it involves putting a different pack on someone reprogramming the show for that one show and the communication of all of that information for us comes from stage management also being told which I think is one of the most common ones being told someone is unwell they might be going off is always an incredible Mm. warning because we can then prepare the microphones and the belts and all of the things and prepare how we're going to do the change as quickly as possible for the person being swung on, especially if it's mid-show. That kind mm. of information is so crucial and we only get that from stage management. But also on some shows, stage management do some of our cues, which is crazy. But I guess you guys kind of get left with that all the time. Any department who has a cue that they can't make is kind of ends up being your problem. But... <laughs> Within Tina specifically, there is a microphone that comes out of the floor. And in other versions of this production, the floor is deep enough under the stage that you're able to set the microphones and leave it and forget and it will just rise and come down due to Australian theatres and the fact that they are not all... Like this show, I think, very much was made to sit in one theatre. It was not... It's not that easy to tour we have discovered uh, because (laughs) the microphone that comes out of the substage does not fit in the basement of this show. Oh, great. That's helpful. And because I'm not on comms, because sound are on their own radio to their own team, we are not on comms like a lot of the other departments. Someone in stage management has had to take the role of being there for the mic lift because they are on comms. They can, you know, clear Mm -hmm. it. They can make sure there's no problems as I wouldn't be able to do. And also because I am busy on stage and if I was to leave stage, that would mean that other people's microphones and their problems are vulnerable to not being fixed because I'm downstairs. So stage management have had to help me out with that one, which has been great. Also, we have a lot of mic stands on the show, which are live and used. They are not props (laughs) and they are moved around stage. I can't carry four at once. 
obviously. Mm-hmm. And there is a point in the show where four at once need to move and stage management are my right hand when it comes to those kind of moments, which is really nice. The relationship between sound and stage management is really important for, for those reasons. Uh, like I haven't been backstage on a big show in a while, but I, I when I think back to any moments of, like you said, if someone's going off sick or if we're having a mid show cast change, there's so many different departments you need to communicate with. But in my mind, I go, sound is kind of number one because if someone is, you know, feeling ill, you guys need to know because you don't want that sound to be amplified oh, <laughs> throughout oh the audience. No. And it's <laughs> it's also, I think, one of the departments where it's hardest for one of the main people who needs to know that information to know. So we need that warning mm. as soon as possible. Like other departments, you can go to the head of wardrobe and say, this person's going on, can you get your dresses to gather their costumes and do what you need to do? Our head of department, who is out the front, and every actor will have their own profile, for lack Mm. of a better word, of their sound settings, depending on the role that they're going on for. So the engineer out front will need to adjust things for the fact that someone new is coming on. They need to be aware that that is happening because the way that they mix the show is knowing how certain cast members deliver certain roles because that affects Mm. how they mix the show. They cannot get on the radio and have a big old chat. They are only able to communicate with us by the person backstage doing the monitoring can type a message to front of house and they can radio back to us. But they can only look at the screen if they have time to stop looking at the console or stage. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing that as soon as possible and knowing when it's going to happen, also because if it's in the middle of a song where that person might actually be on stage or is meant to be on stage, they need to mute their microphone until the correct mic is put onto the patch to go onto the new person. They need to know that, otherwise you're going to hear it. And if someone randomly comes off stage unexpectedly because something is wrong, they need to be told as soon as possible so that they can mute yeah. the person who is making noises that are not expected for that scene. I've definitely had, especially on this show, because the dance track is so demanding for the female ensemble, in the end of the show, there is like this concert mega mix situation after the bows, which is honestly quite cruel. It's like you did three hours of a show and now for 15 <laughs> minutes, you are going to fight for your life. Wow. I, have not, I haven't seen it yet. So it I'm, is so I'm demanding. Uh, we've been told before, you know, this person who is on one of the female ensemble who is essentially like an iCat at that point or one of Tina's backup dancers, she's feeling unwell. So just be aware because if she happens to run off stage, obviously we need to mute her mic and whatever, Mm. but, you know, if she's unwell, not a great scene to be doing, not a great scene at all. But there's also other things that in terms of illness, if cast members have colds or things like that, there are things that front of house can do to help them which is really nice but that kind of information needs to be passed on to us sometimes people need a little bit more help than usual and if i can't be there to hear that request stage management often are or they will find if someone can't find me they will find stage management who will find me if they can't find me because they need more tape their mic is in a weird position and they don't want to adjust it themselves those kind of things i'm often found by stage management and not necessarily that person I want to talk about Phantom of the Opera, specifically 
Hosha's production. Oh. <laughs> Out, like outdoors. Yes. I, I did um, Aida, Opera on the Harbour, uh, 2015. And, you know, it was an experience for me as a stage manager. A lot of ponchos, a lot of spending the day being wet just Boom. for rain. You know, it, it's done at a time of the year, which is one of the wettest times <laughs> in Sydney. What are the, like, logistical nightmares, obviously, involved with sound? It's outdoors. You've got the weather. You've got the elements. All of that sort of stuff. Like, what what's it like working on that from a sound point of view? Traumatic and incredibly rewarding. <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. it is one of the most like that's the that's the show I'm going to be talking about when I'm old. You know, like I'm going to be <laughs> telling the kids about the time that I did that show, and it was truly incredible. But I would not rush back to do another <laughs> production outdoors like that. It would mm. have to be a show I loved, and I think that I only enjoyed it so thoroughly because I loved Phantom, uh, and it was. One of my like dream shows. It was my favorite show when I was a kid and growing up. So to get to do it, to get to do it outside, to get to do it in this spectacular event in a way that it had never been done before. And, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber showed up. He was there, which was also very wholesome. We met a lot of like very important people in Phantom World. Even just Marie, who was our Madame Jury, she was a Christine in Australia when we first had Phantom. Now she was Madame wow. Jury on Broadway. Phantom has so much history and community around it, which mm. was a beautiful experience. But in terms of actually putting the show on, like you said, you're just wet. You're just wet all the time. <laughs> um, to get to the actual site, there is no possible way to get there, even if you drive, without walking about 10 minutes. And in that time, somehow, every single day, I think, my shoes were just soaked just soaked and having wet yeah. shoes all night is not a great experience there's kind of three areas where it was difficult for sound the microphones obviously i saw i think i had to stop myself from going on social media and looking at because a video of the show in a torrential downpour went viral yes a I video of our christine and phantom doing pass the point and no return in a torrential downpour which we did yep. stop the show after that song yeah. I saw all these people on TikTok and on Twitter and whatever commenting like, oh, they're special microphones for the outdoors. They're waterproof, blah, blah, blah. And I was crying in <laughs> under the stage like, no, they're not. This <laughs> is the worst day of my life. I was just waiting for someone's mic to break, their pack to break, something like that, because to a degree they are made to be protected from moisture because of people's sweat and those mm -hmm. kind of things. But they are not waterproof they're just not yeah. especially not the packs and i'm sure you've heard before the sound of someone sweating out when their yes, microphone yes. fills with sweat and it needs to be removed and it sounds like they're underwater i was yeah. just waiting for that every show the whole show also as the crew we had to be outside in the rain all the time the cast were constantly getting drenched that was uncomfortable for them the wind was a huge element as well because I'm sure everyone's heard or been on the phone outside in the wind and you can hear it across the microphone. Things like that are a concern. Another huge one was the orchestra pit. Because the orchestra pit's under the stage, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The orchestra pit the show is under the stage and due to the way that they put the stage together in order to make the show work, it is not waterproof either. Mm. So the reason that these shows stopped when it was torrentially pouring was often because the orchestra pit would flood. And they would have to remove the players from the pit so that their instruments didn't get damaged and ruined. 
there was a particular yeah. show, there's a video yeah. somewhere of me standing over Anthony, who was playing keys at the time, who was then our MD on the next Phantom. I'm standing over him with an umbrella while he plays a song, just trying to keep the water off his keys because there was nothing else to do. Like you either had to stop the show and or try and direct the water away, hoping that the rain would stop, which we did do multiple times and was very stressful. The musicians were not thrilled about water being near their instruments, understandably. Of course. And that was one of the hardest parts. But the other one, which is very fun, was that often in shows, fallback is put into the floor on the stage mm -hmm. because that is the best way for the cast to be able to hear themselves and to hear the orchestra without being having like, you know, going to a gig, you see big ugly wedges on the front of the stage pointing up at people. You obviously can't have that on a show. Well, you could, but it would be disgusting. It would look horrific. So they're in the floor a lot of the time or hidden in the wings. We didn't have wings either. So they were hidden behind like certain poles or bits of staircase or things like that where we could, but most of the fallback was in the floor. And if you put something in floor where there are holes in it, because obviously that is where the sound is coming out and you are in rain, they will mm. fill up with water. So we were having to mm. get water out of the foldbacks, like remove the water from those holes within the stage, which all of that combines for a very stressful show, but it was just beautiful. Like it was an incredible experience. It taught me so much. Our team was fantastic. Shelley Lee was the sound designer on that show and she is phenomenal and she... Emily Adams, who is our head of department engineer, myself and another mic tech named Emma, we just trauma bonded so severely on that show. But to work with such, you know, talented women, especially to work with two women that I look up to and admire so much on a show like that, who also just really believed in me, even though I didn't have a lot of experience being the main mic tech at that point. What a way to be thrown into that position. That was one of my favorite experiences. From my experience working on it as well. It's definitely one of those shows where you've got to do it at least once. You have to experience what it is like to do a production on a scale as large as that is in front of a very iconic spot of the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. Like it's mm. incredible. It's almost like doing like hot yoga or something. Like it is <laughs> awful when you're in the process, but the euphoria afterwards when you've made it work and you've not, when you've survived... Yeah. Not that I've done hot yoga, but that's what I imagine it's like. <laughs> hot yoga does not interest me, but I can see it. But I can see it. And and getting to work with, you know, I know Emily very well. I've done shows with Emily and I look up to her as well. I think she's one of one of the best sound engineers out there. But it's very much about the people that you work with on those shows that are that little bit more difficult. Yeah. It's everyone coming together for finished product, which is, you know, putting on a wonderful show. Absolutely. And I've been I've been so fortunate that the shows I've worked on, which I've only been doing commercial professional theatre for two years, and I've worked on multiple shows. Yeah. And I've I've really been lucky in the departments that I have been part of. I've had so many incredible people take me under their wing and teach me lots of things, especially like I said, Emily and Shelley Lee, also Anthony, who is the current head of department on Tina and who is my head of department on the Indoor Phantom, is one of the best people I have ever met. And just to work with such kind, talented people who are so willing to offer 
their years and years of experience and knowledge to me is such a privilege. I really feel like in a role like a mic tech, there is no, this is the handbook of how you do it, how you put a show <laughs> together, how you maintain the show, how you do this particular show. There is no handbook. Some shows that have been going around for a long time, everyone's like, well, this is what we did 20 years ago. Yeah. But you are entirely left alone to just make that work. And that can be so overwhelming. I found that very overwhelming on on Tina, actually, because it was phantom. There is so much documentation of past shows and different productions that are currently happening in the world and what people are doing. And the people I was doing the show with, like Shelley's done phantom a million times. When I did phantom on Hosh with Emily, Emily's done it a million times. <laughs> so I had their experience and their knowledge to draw on. When I got given Tina, it was, here is a bunch of different plots that we have from various different versions of the production all over the world. We have no idea what it means. Chookers. Like, good luck, basically. Is it the same sort of thing for, for you? Because I know when we get a lot of paperwork and documentation for stage management that comes from overseas it's not very clear and concise like I feel like the Australian creatives and you know teams here put so much effort into paperwork and documentation mm. but I always feel like when we get stuff from from the states I'm always like okay this this is half complete like this doesn't have all the information or two different documents are contradicting each other did you find that working on this oh absolutely and it I think yeah. the thing that I found the most challenging for Tina was that the plots that I were given uh, were from teams where they clearly had more people than we had. Like there were multiple people doing what is essentially my role because the B plot were situated in the basement so they could do a lot of the substage stuff. There was just a different division of staff and there yeah. was multiple different versions of the show. So I took all of these plots, which they'd also separated the plots between like a normal cast, normal deck plot, and then also the stand plot, which if you get to see the show, notice how many times microphone stands come on and off stage. Yeah, I was going to ask you that before if there was a, <laughs> was, a, was a specific microphone stand plot. So the microphone stand plot was given to me as its own thing, which I took all of the plots and made them one mega draft plot and kind of using yep. the archival that I was able to access and watch as well. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to go watch rehearsals three times while we were bumping oh, in, great. which if I didn't do that, I would have been fucked because it was. <laughs> the show is so much and it is huge for everyone, which it looks so like it looks so nice and wrapped up and sleek from out the front. Like the, de but the design is beautiful, but like quite simple and effective. So I don't think anyone is really thinking that it is an absolute shit fight backstage, which it's not really anymore. But at first, oh my God, yeah. it absolutely was for every department, especially wigs, hair and makeup are fighting for their lives on this show. <laughs> but the stands throughout the show, there are six different stand microphones and eight different handhelds on stands. These are all used in various different songs at different heights. They also change like the top, like the microphone itself that's on top of the stand multiple times throughout the show to reflect the era of time that we're in. Every time one comes off stage, which is always from a different location, they're preset in different spaces, they have to be changed height, top, 
where they go, what song they're being used for, which cast members using them, put in the right location, ready to go for the next song. And sometimes you have half a song to do that. Yeah. They're also weirdly heavy because they're made to look like oh. they are, like they're wired microphones, which just means that we've had cables soldered specifically to fit between the base of the stand where all of the technical gear is to make it yeah. wireless, kind of like they're microphones. Yeah. And then the wire that connects the mic to that piece of equipment. There's that. And then there's also all of the cast on mics. There are speakers and different sound effects coming from inside different props. There is a band that's on stage and majority of the band are also on like a wireless setup because the, the band move back and forth up and down stage throughout the show and the brass section also get up and walk around as well as drums and bass also do that wow. too. They are on stage for a lot of the show. So the backstage plot is quite demanding and the show yeah. is is a lot, but it's beautiful. <laughs> it. It really is worth it, but it was it was interesting when I finished Phantom because we had a particular show where we had a huge battery issue, and I was sold this show with like the fact that we would be using a certain kind of transmitter that takes a 14-hour battery, so you don't have wow. to change battery between shows on the cast, yeah. which obviously saves heaps of time in turnaround. It's beautiful. It's yeah. a great time. We had them on Poppins, and it was fantastic. They didn't uh, mention the uh, other things that would be using batteries during the show, like all of the handheld microphones, all of the in-ear monitor packs for the band and for props, all of the little elements of technology that go into the bottom of the stands to make them wireless. They all take AA batteries. And there are also like motorbike batteries, essentially, wow. that go into a piano and also into the electric drum kit that is used on stage. So in the course of a show, we use over 100 batteries every show. And wow. I also lift those mic stands over 50 times every show. Who needs to go to hot yoga when you can lift the microphone <laughs> It really is quite demanding. It's a, It's been a huge challenge, but it's been also really rewarding. It's been a very difficult plot to teach, which has I've quickly realized. And that is where, like you said, Australia really take a lot of care with their plots. Mm. Uh, that is where that has really come in handy. Uh, I think the plot that I have made for this show is the most detailed plot that I have ever created. But in the times where someone's had to cover me a couple of times when they didn't they didn't get a chance to shadow very much or to watch me do the plot, which words mm -hmm. on a page and seeing them in action, I'm sure it's the same for you guys, are very different. Yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't really make a lot of sense until you see it in action. But in those situations... The person who covered me was just asking stage management where I usually am, what I'm usually doing, yeah. or they would be saying to them, I don't know what she's doing, but she's usually in wing two right now. And they would be able to kind of figure out what was going on from yeah. that point. So <laughs> I've been saved by stage management on this show by knowing not only their own plots, but also where everybody else is. Because like yeah. you said, you guys are watching every department for who is meant to be where, especially in terms yeah. of safety, in terms of people coming on and off stage, but also watching everything that happens on stage. You're everywhere. Your eyes everywhere. Yeah. You really do. It's difficult. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. You know, that, that slight yeah. lapse of concentration and your, your struggle to get back in. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. 
as I said, I haven't seen Tina yet, but I have a feeling now going to see it in a couple of weeks' time that I'm going to have such a different perspective <laughs> on it and a wider, like, sound perspective on it as well. Like, I'm everything you've talked about, I'm now going to be like, Monique's running back there somewhere doing you know, <laughs> doing her mic stand plot. Um, I'm very excited for it. Yeah, there's there's also such an incredible sound design involved with the show as well. Our, um, our sound designer, Nevin, who he done a couple of little shows you might have heard of Hamilton in the Heights, Hades Town, Durban Hansen. Never heard of them. He's done a couple of shows. So he might know what he's doing a little bit. Also just the <laughs> nicest person who is so heavily involved with the cast in the production process. We did a Wandle probe, not a Sits probe, where mm-hmm. I had no idea what that was. But the Wandle part makes sense because he walks around stage with the cast and hears what they're hearing and wants to know if they are being supported by the sound on stage and their experience and he communicates with them so clearly. And I feel like that really set a foundation for the company feeling like they could trust the department to an extent because of Mm. the foundation that he set, which was really special, especially in a show like this, where we're dealing with a lot of really heavy themes in the show. Sometimes the things that are happening on stage are not as important, I imagine, as the things that people are wrestling with having to perform this show there's a lot of things that would stick with you when you leave the building so to be in a supportive company where anyone is able to walk up to any department and talk to them has been really important and I think that our creatives did a really really great job at doing that international and Australian and his sound design is just beautiful and it he was telling Shelley about you know usually when uh, engineer is given the show they're given a script and it's got like mixed to negative 10 mixed to this person blah 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 like you hit yep. marks and Shelley was telling me that his description of there's a certain scene where all of the people kind of from Tina's past that we've seen like her grandmother and the child version of her and the people that were in the first scene who are representative of her ancestors are called onto the stage And the symbolism of that was because there's a whole bunch of the show that exists in what is called the Etherland, which is Tina's kind of dream state almost. But it's this really emotional point of the show where she kind of is having this breakthrough. It's the end of Act One. It's It makes me cry every time, even still. And she calls on the ancestors for help and basically and for support and they all come out And this happens a couple times in the show. And when talking about how that is mixed, it wasn't like, yeah, put them to this level, do this. The reverb should sound like this. His request was, you know, what does someone invoking their ancestors sound like? And that is what you should make happen, which I just think is beautiful because in a space where, you know, it is so easy to just follow the technical to do that, sometimes you forget about or it could be easy to forget about if you're not someone who is often thinking of that, the fact that there are people in the audience emotionally experiencing this show and that the sound design can aid in that communication of what is going on and of the emotion of a scene based on what you do. And so to work with a sound designer who puts emphasis on that and who cared so much about putting together a team who could handle and support the cast with the themes of the show... That is amazing, and I'm so thrilled to be part of a show like that. 
it sounds so beautiful and so important to, you know, as you said, the audience are, are going through that emotional journey every show as well as the cast and everyone backstage. It's so wonderful to hear the the sort of story behind that and, and that it's not just, yeah, set it to this level and be done. It's like, you know, that could change per venue, per, you know, city that they do this show, like that emotion of how that sound is is put together. It's so wonderful. Obviously, we've talked about the topics within Tina, like that they are can be quite dark and quite heavy. On my last episode with Daniel Story, we spoke about, you know, the importance of de-rolling, especially as a stage manager. The cast need to de-roll at the end of the night to make sure they're not taking any of that baggage from the show home. I think it's really important as us as creatives in any department to go through that same process. What are you doing for yourself, you know, at the end of the night to help sort of push all of this show away and, and focus on, you know, getting back into your real world? What a good question. I... I really struggled with this when I started in the industry, not just in theatre, in all other parts for a long time, especially because working in this industry is the dream. Yeah. Everyone in it, I think, or almost everyone, this is what they dreamed of. So when you do it, sometimes it's really hard to leave work at work and not bring it home with yeah. you and not make it your identity almost in a way, yeah. um, which makes it you know difficult for you to set boundaries and to prioritize your health, mental and physical, all of those kind of things. One of the biggest helps that I have found in the last year, year plus, has honestly been my partner, like having a really strong home life where I feel safe and comfortable and I feel like that is my identity, like who I am at home with my family and with my friends mm. has become the home base, whereas which I found I struggled with this when I went on tour with Phantom, when I was away from that home base, um, it's really easy for work to become the default, work to become the home base and for going home and sleeping and eating and all of those things to be the filler instead of a space where you rehabilitate yourself before you have to go back in because we're working such long hours, doing really demanding roles, especially in production and in tech, like the hours we rack up are insane and I imagine oh, you God. guys they're yeah. probably even worse I think on the phantom load-in in Sydney we did an 128 hour work week straight which was more than seven days but it was done straight yeah. and how do you how do you take care of yourself in conditions like that yeah it's not easy yeah but in in terms of just like a normal show life and schedule I really try to make sure that I have my life outside of work prioritized and make sure that on my day off I see people I don't work with I see my <laughs> friends who aren't in the industry I see yeah. I make time to talk to my family I have found that inviting my family and friends to kind of be part of the work experience in certain ways has also helped me feel grounded like working in this industry has taken me away from my family and friends like I think it does all of us yeah in a way that we don't think about when we get into the industry like I've missed birthdays and Christmases and holidays and girls nights and you know, just things like that because hot yoga, hot yoga with the gals <laughs> because of the nature of our industry and 
I started a YouTube channel just over a year ago or about a year ago. And that allowed my family to an extent to see what I was doing for work and what I was doing in my day to day, which made them feel more involved in my life. And like, I wasn't just a stranger popping back in, but also meant that we still felt familiar when we were together with my family and friends. Like they knew what was going on with me. We didn't have to just talk about my job when we caught up. I could ask about them. We could do other things. And that really helped. Yeah. Loving the home I'm living in, setting up a really good home has also been a huge one for me, which again is difficult for some people if they're mm-hmm. touring and in company or com. Yeah. Um, but that's been a really important one for me and one that I've prioritized. Like when we went to Melbourne with Phantom, I didn't stay in company or com. I went and found somewhere else to live, which was difficult um, because I needed that separation. If I only live at work, it very quickly deteriorates my ability to show up as the person that I want to be in the workplace and being able to remove myself and be Monique, the partner, sister, daughter, friend, and not just the mic tech is the only way that I'm able to step back into that role with the joy and enthusiasm that I always want to. Also, baths, Epsom salts. I live in the bath. (laughs) I'm the same. It's it. It's taken me a long time and still is like, I've just been in Melbourne for the past month for once. And my sort of, you know, a role as a stage manager is I'm kind of on 24 seven, sure. like you, you set your boundaries, but I have, would have cast members, you know, calling me at 1130 at night, you know, work had only finished an hour ago. I'm still very much awake or needing to be awake at 9am for any cast changes or anything that may happen. I'm not working all day, every day. But I'm, I'm, you know, I am still on. And even now I'm, I'm on break at the moment, but I am still working because we're in the Gold Coast shortly and, you know, there's still jobs that need to be done. So I'm still very much working right now, but in my time, which is really nice. But I would find in Melbourne, I was, I was doing that. I was in company accommodation. I was going from the accommodation to work to the accommodation to work. And I've left Melbourne going, oh, I did not really do much in Melbourne. Right. I've been to Melbourne many times for work, but one thing that I, I would try and do at least once a week is go and do one of those floats. Oh yeah. There'd be times where I'll go and do it where I just don't tune out and my brain's too, too active, but then there's times where I, you know, feel really relaxed. But yeah, it, it's one of the sort of conversations that I'm, I'm having with guests now on the podcast is, is just around, you know, that de-rolling and how, what do you do to find time outside of work? Because yeah, as you said, you don't want your identity to be a radio mic tech. I don't want my identity to be a stage manager, and that's all I do. But it's not easy. It is hard. No, it, <laughs> it, does, hard. it does take time to work out what that healthy work-life balance is. And it's so difficult because, you know, I love my job. This is everything that I ever dreamed of and more, yeah. and I I truly, truly love it, and I think it is such a blessing to have a job I love. A lot of people don't get to make money off of their passion, especially not enough to survive, which is incredible. I'm working on these huge, beautiful shows that child me growing up in Orange couldn't even imagine. Like (laughs) I've worked on both of my favorite shows already. I've worked with some of the most talented people all over the world who've come into Australia to share these shows with us and do these jobs. And it is incredible. But one day I'm not going to be a mic tech. One day I'm just going to be Monique. And I want my nephews and nieces to remember me and to not just have me be that random person who floats in and out every couple of years at family events. I want a stable, 
healthy relationship with someone who truly knows me and memories of that that we can look back on, which finding time off to go and actually go on holiday in this industry, kind of unheard of. People wait for gaps between contracts where they then have Mm. to choose, do I go have an experience that isn't just work or do I go reconnect with my family? And you have to choose between the two. Mm. Or do mm. I choose my health and get all of the things done that I can't do on tour, like go to the dentist yeah. and go to a proper doctor or get my wisdom <laughs> teeth out or, yeah. you know, all of those kind of things. It's yeah. so demanding and it's such a special job, but I very, very quickly realized that it's not going to be my life forever. Yeah. And so I need to treat it like a job. It can still be the dream and still be a job. And I find that looking at it like that, I'm able to have better boundaries in the workplace. I'm able to say, actually, I need a break now. Actually, I am injured and I do need to see the physio. Things like that, which when I first started, oh, I would never have, I would never have rocked the boat. I would never have asked for a day off, said, oh, no, but I actually needed that time off. And I expressed that to the company in the first place, or I need to go see a doctor today instead of oh, I'm, I'm literally dying. I'm coughing up a lung in the basement and I can't breathe, but I will still come in and do my job, which sounds weird to say luckily COVID in a sentence, but I think that the pandemic really, people were forced to take days off. Yeah. Like before that, it was, especially in any kind of entertainment, it was like, you're unwell. What do you need to do to be at work anyway? Because no mm-hmm. one can cover you and you're not really encouraged to take time off. I think that's been a really big change that I've seen since COVID. And, and like when I was studying, it was very much like, no, you just work. Work is yeah. life. This is what you do. Like this is everything. And I've seen a lot of change since then, uh, since COVID, in regards to like take time off. It's okay to be sick. Like, you know, yes, we still need you to work because there may be no one to cover you, but like we understand it. Like it, I think there's a lot more acceptance about actually mm. taking that mental health break. Yeah, I think that was kind of drilled into me quite early that I needed to prioritize my body because and like my health in all ways because when I started working out of uni, not in theater, but just in like general crewing and uh, bumping in and out like really big concerts and stuff and I was often the only young person, the only woman as well within a crew of, you know, men who were in their 40s, 50s and 60s and all of them if given the chance, would tell me to look after my back (laughs) and (laughs) to make time for my family because, you know, there's an organisation in Australia called Support Act who, as far as I'm aware, which I might be mixing two different stories, but from what I believe that my brain remembers, was (laughs) created out of this generation of roadies and crew in Australia in, you know, the 70s, 80s, 60s, who didn't have unions, who didn't have work regulations, who didn't have Mm. all of those things that we now, fortunately, in a lot of parts of the industry have. And so they just worked and destroyed themselves for their job. They, a lot of them took drugs to get through the shifts that they were doing Mm. and to stay up for the long drives they had to do. They fucked their bodies up because they were doing demanding roles and didn't have anyone to help and they didn't understand the work health and safety around lifting. They... Mm. climbing things without harnesses, touching electrical things without safety gear. They never found and developed stable long-term relationships because of the nature of touring all the time. If they had kids, they were never around for their kids because of the nature of the job. And there was this whole generation of 
crew who were just either miserable or unfortunately ending their lives. And Mm. there were organizations created off the back of that to offer support to these people and to people within our industry who are going through financial, mental, physical hardships to support them because they've seen the consequences of what happens if they don't. So I feel very fortunate. This took a very dark turn. Sorry, if that feels, (laughs) I feel very fortunate. No, no, it's an important, yeah, it's an important conversation. Yeah, I I feel very fortunate now to be at a point of the industry where not only is there a lot more diversity and inclusion and that is changing every day, thankfully, but, you know, there's still a lot of work for us to do in that space. But health is prioritized more and COVID kind of forced that to really become a priority, which is great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that insight into the industry and, you know, your views on that and and talking openly about the importance of caring for yourself and, you know, what you can do to make sure that you are not only physically, but mentally there and present within, within your job. You want to go to work and be present, but you also want to be able to go home at the end of the day and be present. Like you've got that balance is not easy and it takes time. And and thank you for sharing your journey on that. It's also for the sake of the job, right? Like, yeah, I don't see a time in my life where the goal is to retire and not work because I love this industry. I think I always, as far as I can see right now, at, you know, 25 <laughs> years old, I I just want to be involved in this community and in this industry in some capacity. And I need to make sure that I'm able to do that. Right now I'm, like I said, injured. And normal 25-year-olds are not injured from their job. So I want to do everything that I can to make sure that I can be a person outside of the job, but also so that I can keep doing the job. It's that thing that I always say to people because people go, oh, you work such long hours, you do this, you do that. I'm like... It's one of those industries where if you didn't love what you do, you you just don't do it. Anyone oh, that sort of is in a place of of struggling because they're not sure if they want to do it or make it or, you know, whatnot, if, if you're sitting in that place, really do just step back from it and go, do I actually love it? Because yeah. if you love it, you, you can do it. And it's not saying that it's easy to do it, but I very much love what I do and that's what helps me continue to push myself. Yeah, it is that choice that you make where, you know, as a 18-year-old looking at what I wanted to do with my life, I, you know, I was raised by a single mum who obviously then had to work enough to support a family on her own. And I saw mm. what working, how much working was a part of her life, that adults, because of the world we live in, have to work, most of us. And that majority of my life was probably going to be spent in a workplace to some degree. Mm. So I'd never wanted to go to work and wish I was somewhere else. I wanted to go to work every day loving what I do and thinking that it's worth it and the kind of work hours and the work days and the travel and all of those things that we do are a part of it and I think everyone has to weigh up whether it is worth it and whether that impacts whether it's still enjoyable to them because if that stuff ruins it and doesn't make you happy, you're right, you may as well not do it because if you don't love it god it must be fucking miserable yeah yeah that's that's very true you've got to love what you do if i wasn't crying in the wings every single bows of every show i've worked on (laughs) every night i wouldn't be doing it and it is like that i especially oh my god especially come from away every show sobbing just yeah Every every day it hit me. As much as I've really tried to make that division between like work is a job and I need to take care of myself outside of that, I 
still have such a romantic view of what we're doing, of the show, of the story coming to life on stage. And I think that helps me to love it so much still, even when it is difficult. What's that saying that's like, if when you let your own light shine, you give others permission to do the same. It's like when you talk about your own well-being and work-life balance, you give other people permission to do the same. So we touched briefly on your YouTube channel. You said that you set it up to share what you were doing with your family, but you found a little bit of a following. Like people are really, and I myself, really enjoy the content that you're producing because you give a, a really great insight into what it is like working backstage. Is that something that you're really passionate about, like that inspiration, you know, inspiring your next generation? Yeah. I think when I entered the industry, I had no idea what to expect. I knew nothing, especially, you know, in in Fringe and stuff like that. It's kind of just everyone's making it up as they go all the time. But in an industry like theatre, which is already so structured because of, you know, it's a money-making machine. A lot of money is being made out of these shows so there is a lot of intention behind what the show is like what is like the audience's experience what the company's experience is like working where people live what people do like all Mm. of those kind of things are thought about and kind of decided for us and there's almost a or at least I felt when I started like almost an expectation that that is common knowledge yeah which was not common knowledge oh oh my goodness like (laughs) it was you know things about touring and the work hours and even things as little as like preparing meals because you're not going to have enough time to uh, go and get food between every shift but you need to because you're not going to be home for dinner yeah or that the theater you're in depending on it might not have food around you or your break might go over and then you miss your opportunity like things like that like there are so many little tips and tricks that people started sharing with me or that I started picking up that I wish I had before I entered the industry. Or I imagine there is a lot of people who enter the industry and go, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. Mm. And you don't know that until you're in it. I was fortunate enough to get into the industry and really love it. But I imagine that some people have the opposite experience because of, especially I, I don't know how parents work the way that we do I am so in awe of the parents who maintain parenthood along with this industry and I have no idea how they do it how they manage that because those are two full-time roles those are two more than full-time roles those people are never off and I thought that if I just shared you know some of these things then that might help people entering the industry and also there was all of these great mic techs and great you know, crew members who were sharing their little tips and tricks with me. And I just thought it'd be cool to share it on a bit of a larger scale. Also, theatre fans, whether they're fans of the technical side because they're within our industry or whether they are just audience members who love shows, they love to know what's going on. Like, they love (laughs) the process. They love, especially doing Phantom was every show, I think, has like a little bit of a cult following. But doing Hamilton and doing Phantom was an insane insight to the way that a lot of people want to know everything about the shows that they love because it means so much to them. And it's been really rewarding to share that with people and to engage with the theatre community because as crew, I don't think that's something that we get a lot of access to. You know, people will wait at stage door for 
cast and they will follow them online and talk to them and follow their careers in a way. But that is, you know, often they don't know who the ASM is, yeah. you know, like they, they don't get an insight into our world and they want it. Like they love it. Yeah. And it's been really special to share that and to have younger people looking to get into the industry especially people who don't fit the normal mold of, you know, what a crew member looks like saying that, you know, sharing the videos I've shared or the things that I have said have helped them want to pursue the industry more or helped them in their community theater show because I shared the way I fixed a certain thing with a mic or like things like that. Like it's just a beautiful like sharing of knowledge and information that was one of my favorite things about entering the industry that all of these people who had more experience than I did or different experience than I did were sharing their tips and tricks with me and I'd be a little sponge and absorb it all (laughs) and that's kind of what the YouTube channel has become because I might be you know the one making videos but I've got a discord as well that people are in and there is a real like little community that we've made around the channel full of some really incredible talented people and lovers of the arts who just want to love it. And it helps me stay romantic about it because yeah. they're excited about things that I was once excited about, but I'm now accustomed to. And it just reminds me to, to stay present in the shows and in the job and in the things that made me want to do it in the first place. I, I love that. And that's sort of where my mind goes as well with like all the content that I share through my many social media accounts and, and through the podcast as well, is that, you know, there are that next generation of stage managers or, you know, soundies or whoever out there that want to understand more about what happens, what the real life backstage is. You know, you sort of get a insight into little bits and pieces, but unless you're working on them, you really don't understand what the full operation is and and that's what I want to do I want to be sharing all of that sort of information that I can you know obviously there's things mm. confidential that you can't talk about yes you know, people always want to be like tell me when this thing went wrong you know tell me about that and you go oh, <laughs> I kind of can't talk about well, it give me a couple of years after the contract's done and I'll vaguely say it without <laughs> naming the show yeah <laughs> and you'll never know but you will know but you won't I think it's it's really important and and I absolutely love the content that you put out and and the things that you talk about you know through your social media channels because it is it is that sort of that little Monique looking to get into sound may not have found interest in sound without you know coming across your videos and and the stuff you talk about so thank you from the audience <laughs> for for sharing <laughs> all of that wonderful content when i was looking online for information about you know when i first started i wanted to know everything about the industry i wanted to know about you know i was looking up like broadway and west end you know backstage you know podcasts and blogs and and things like that and I was struggling to find anything and definitely not anything within Australia and I think now there is a little bit of you know there are a few of us who are doing things but a bunch of them are performers and that's great but majority of the people who work on a show are not performers most (laughs) of the time like there is almost double the crew usually and there's like you know two-thirds of the building worth of jobs up for grabs and we we talk a lot about and there's a lot of discussion around representation in theatre and in the arts in general and a lot of that conversation is still quite centred around performers obviously because they're who the audience are seeing but I think there's still a lot of work in that space to be done for us as well like I I only met female engineers once I started working many years in kind Mm. of by chance Mm. I'd never seen a woman who was in my role 
until I was the one doing it myself. Like yeah. I was the first female engineer I ever knew. It's very eye-opening, isn't it? It's quite, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I felt comfortable to do that when I, like why I felt like I could do the role. And there's a lot of privileges that I still have, even though, you know, I am a woman in an industry that is quite male dominated. And I think about the change that I want to see in the industry is everyone being welcome. I think theater is probably the most diverse workplace that I've been in, Mm. but there's still so much work to be done in that space. And if just empowering people with a bit of knowledge and information about what they should expect or what they should unprepared for helps make that change. And if, you know, throughout the process of the communities around these channels and podcasts and things that we're concrete, like that we're creating, we can encourage more people into these jobs because also, damn, the industry needs crew. Yeah. We're in a shortage. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like, if we can get more people in, then you won't have to be lighting stage management company management, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, Monique, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Whispers in the Wings. If our audience wanted to reach out and find out more about you and connect with you, where could they do so? I have an Instagram account and a YouTube account where I make videos and you know share content about my experience working in the industry and of the shows that I am working on. Uh, those are both under Monique Tech, nothing in between, just Monique Tech. And there are new videos every week, as well as I constantly share the chaos of working in the industry. I've also got a Discord, which is under the same name, which is a really wholesome community that if you want to chat to people about the arts, about theatre, about sound, that's a really good place to be. Amazing. Well, I'll pop all those links in the show notes so that the listener can check them out and, and connect with you. But once again, thank you, Monique. I really appreciate chatting with you today. Thank you. I'm very honoured to have been the first non-stage manager. Yes. Oh, I just remembered that too. I was so lost in our conversation that I forgot about that. I am. That is going to be, that's going on my CV. Please. It's going to be my ego for the next foreseeable future. (laughs) I (laughs) cannot wait to to see what else you get up to and where this credit takes you. This new ego that I have, which I will also be using to, if you head over to my Instagram, you will be able to see me wearing my That's the Five jumper <gasps> because the five is a very important time for sound as well. It is where sound and stage management meet. It is. We meet there. We spend our time it's together. It's a very important time. It is. Well, my friend, that does bring us to the end of this episode of Whispers in the Wings. And I do want to acknowledge the open an honest conversation Monique was having about the industry and how it is really, really important and vital when you are working in this industry that you do find support when needed. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, Support Act offer a free phone counselling service for anyone working in the Australian music and arts industry and you can reach them by calling 1800 959 500. And if you are overseas or not working in the industry, please do reach out to many other wonderful support services. Prioritise your well-being, reach out for help if needed, and remember that you are not alone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I'll catch you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 